Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, August 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The Trump administration just proposed a plan to let Americans import drugs from Canada. STAT's D.C. correspondent Nick Florco joins us to explain what that would look like. In the world of pharma, Pfizer is combining its generic drug business with Mylan. We'll talk about the implications and the personalities behind the big deal. What happens when racists go on Reddit and 4chan to talk about 23andMe? Computer scientist Jeremy Blackburn, who specializes in studying jerks on the internet, joins us to discuss a fascinating and disturbing new study. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. There's a pretty minuscule number of things that unite President Trump and Senator Bernie Sanders. But here's one of them. And that's the idea that Americans should be able to import drugs from other countries if they cost less there than they do in the States. And it's fair to say that the majority of Trump's party thinks that this is an awful idea, and so too does the powerful pharmaceutical lobby. And yet this week, the Trump administration put out a preliminary but very real proposal that would let Americans import medicines from Canada. But as you'd expect, it's considerably more complicated than it might sound. So we asked that D.C. correspondent Nick Florco to join us and explain. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, for starters, explain to us exactly what the Trump plan proposes. So there's two parts to what the Trump administration announced today. The one that's getting the most attention basically says that the government is going to start writing a regulation outlining how states, pharmacies, or wholesalers can apply to start importing certain drugs. After those regulations are written, then they'll begin piloting importation for a time-limited period in certain areas of the country. The second part is less exciting. Basically, the FDA is writing new guidance for drug makers on how they can import lower-cost versions of drugs already sold in the U.S., basically the versions of drugs they were planning to send to Canada, for example. As I understand it, this is basically a way for drug makers to lower their list price without totally impacting their U.S. pricing, which has an impact on insurance formulary placement, for example. So the sort of importation plans you mentioned that would come from states or wholesalers, what might those actually look like? Well, I'd encourage those interested to read a plan put out by the folks over at the National Academy of State Health Policy They've come up with a model plan they've been shopping around to states for a few years now. Basically, under that plan, the state would either become a drug wholesaler itself or they'd partner with one. And that wholesaler would then connect with a Canadian pharmacy to begin importing drugs. And those drugs, in theory, would be available at your regular neighborhood pharmacy. The state would also have a process to sample those drugs to make sure they're legitimate And they'd have to comply with existing requirements, which essentially require the tracking of drugs from the factory to the pharmacy counter. That being said, we don't actually have an example of how this works in practice. A few states have passed laws requiring their state to come up with a plan to import drugs, but no one has actually submitted a plan like that yet. So, Nick, we have seen a lot of ideas floated by the White House and by HHS 
about you know how to lower drug prices, and this is the latest. So what are the odds that this actually results in drugs getting imported from Canada? So the 2020 election is a real issue here first. It's pretty unlikely, given the slow regulatory process, that this idea fully gets stood up by the election. If Trump wins the election, though, I honestly do think it's pretty likely we see this tried out in some states. Trump has already publicly supported Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his plan to import drugs for Florida. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the first state where this is piloted. But remember, they're planning to pilot these programs in select states. It's not as if drugs are just going to start pouring in from Canada all over the country. So let's talk about Alex Azar. He's the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So I'm old enough to remember when he called drug importation a gimmick when it came to lowering healthcare costs. What led him to change his mind? Well, the obvious reason is President Trump, who talked about importation throughout the 2016 campaign. Personally, I wouldn't want to be the person in the Oval Office trying to convince the president why this seemingly easy fix to high drug costs isn't that easy. And it's easy to imagine a scenario where, given all the setbacks with Trump's other drug pricing proposals, that Azar just finally gave in. Azar won't say that directly, but he's acknowledged that Trump has impacted his thinking. Reporters asked him to explain this change of heart during a call this morning, and he said Trump was, quote, always pushing me, challenging me to find more solutions to help the American patient. His more official reasoning is that technology is now there to actually be able to track drugs and ensure they're coming from where they say they're coming from. Azar acknowledged that the law requiring these tracking systems, which is known in D.C. as track and trace, wasn't actually implemented when he first tackled this issue during his tenure during the Bush administration. So importing drugs from Canada has been discussed in this country for years on and off. But one thing that I think seldom gets mentioned is how Canadians feel about the idea. What has been the reaction among officials to the North? It's safe to say they don't love the proposal, mainly because there's just not enough drugs to go around. Canada has a much smaller market than the U.S., and studies have shown that if the U.S. starts seriously importing drugs from Canada, their supply will basically dry up. Reuters had a great story exposing the talking points that Canadian government officials are using to actually try to discourage this idea. Uh, And a group of top Canadian health groups, including the Canadian Pharmacists Association and the Canadian Medical Association, also recently sent a letter to the Canadian government raising concerns about the growing popularity of importation in the U.S. So, Nick, where does this go next? So it has to go through the regular regulatory process. The Trump administration has to release what's called a proposed regulation. Then they have to let public comment come in on it. Then they have to finalize that proposal. And then on top of that, they have to wait for states, pharmacies, or wholesalers to submit their importation plans. They need to review those, and the states can actually get to trying to make this work. So what's next is a lot of lawyering on the behalf of HHS and the states, and a lot of waiting on behalf of consumers. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about one of the strangest marriages in recent pharmaceutical history. That is Pfizer, the 170-year-old paragon of buttoned-up big pharma seriousness, is merging its generics business with Mylan, which is a scandal-prone generics company with a confusing corporate structure whose most famous product has become shorthand for price gouging. Yeah, so the deal was announced earlier this week, and beyond the financial particulars, the most interesting aspect of it is arguably the cultural fit. So how did Wall Street react to the idea of Pfizer joining forces with Mylan? Yeah, Rebecca. So on that subject of Mylan, Bernstein analyst Ronnie Gal said, and here's a quote, it is hard to imagine a more different culture than Pfizer. 
And then he added, the risk of underperformance due to culture conflict is very real. The next two years will be a Harvard Business School case one way or the other. So for anyone who hasn't been following Mylan in recent years, what are kind of the bullet points of this allegedly toxic culture they've built? Yeah, so it really begins with Robert Quarry. He's the longtime Mylan chairman, and he'll remain in that post once the companies combine. And he is a colorful character in every sense of the word. So under his tenure, Mylan has pretty thoroughly disenfranchised shareholders, By registering its business in the Netherlands, it became a national pariah due to price increases on the EpiPen. And then there's the whole private jet thing. So, right. So, Rebecca, about that corporate jet. So, you know, it's not necessarily unusual for large companies to have private jets. But what was particularly sort of egregious with Mylan and Bob Corey is that he, per his employment agreement, was allowed to have personal use of the jet for his family and for him. And then for whatever hours that he didn't use the jet, he was paid in cash. So he actually got money from Mylan and Mylan shareholders for not using the private jet. This is also how my employment contract with Stat works. And I'm thinking about adding that to my contract. So not to harp on the jet thing, but I think one of the more interesting kind of blips in in Mylan's evolution was the revelation that Robert wasn't the only Corey being flown around on shareholders' dime, right? So yeah, Damien, you say blip. I think other people might say scandal. Uh, There was, as you mentioned, some controversy about Robert Corey's use of the Mylan corporate jet for his personal use, including his family. They seem to use the jet like a family SUV. Right. And one of the interesting sort of tidbits from a Wall Street Journal story about seven years ago, uh, looking into Robert Corey's use of the jet was that he was sort of flying around the country to catch the gigs of his son, Robert Tino, who goes by Tino. I checked on Tino, and it doesn't appear that he is still an active musician. However, while he was, he released a series of songs. And uh, why don't we take a listen to one right now? It's called Diary. I read your diary and So Diary is apparently a song about a boyfriend who reads his girlfriend's diary and finds out that she's cheating on him and she's about to leave him. So that's kind of creepy. We've gotten so far away from the business of pharma. That's a good point, Rebecca. I feel a little bit like we're punching down here. (laughs) So what does all of this have to do with this Corey business have to do with the Myelin Pfizer deal and sort of the ultimate success or failure of that deal, Damien? That's a good question. I think the primary reaction was with everything that we just discussed, whether it be fairly, you know, petty critiques of somebody's music acumen or the very serious ones of, you know, Mylan incorporating overseas in a way that made it difficult for shareholders to have any kind of say over what the company did. That is in such incredible contrast to Pfizer. And so you can see why Wall Street was kind of flummoxed by the idea that that Pfizer would want to do business with Mylan. Pfizer, obviously, you know, we mentioned is very old and it has not lived a life without scandal, but the company has always been immaculately polished. They've always formed a united front and you could say anything you like about their decision making, but the sort of, uh, you know, whimsy, I guess, that we've attributed to Robert Corey was not seen whatsoever in, in Ian Reid, the recently departed CEO. I remember very well when they were trying to buy AstraZeneca some years ago, watching Ian Reid stay calm while basically getting accused of espionage by British MPs. He is very much the like platonic ideal of a pharma CEO. 
and in contrast to kind of Pfizer's, you know, sort of stolid, upstanding reputation sort of is Mylan, which, you know, is a company that investors sort of hate, you know, a company that has been on the decline for years, that has like serially disappointed shareholders. The business is tanking and people have sort of trying to vent their frustration at Bob Corey, the chairman of the board and kind of the guy who presumably runs the company. And he has weathered uh, many, many calls for his ouster. And so here he is sort of, you know, engineering this deal with Pfizer and he's firmly entrenched in the company, has no plans to leave. And so I think a lot of people who look at this and say, you know, why is this going to be any better than it's already been? So given all those doubts and obvious cultural disparities, why did Pfizer do this? I was wondering the same thing. I think, you know, it's important to remember that the company has been on a years-long quest to divest what they call their non-core businesses. So they spun out the animal health group, they've gotten rid of the baby formula business, and more recently they got rid of their consumer products business. And so generics was next on the list. And that was a an evolution that Ian Reid, as we mentioned, the recently departed CEO, had been questing after for some time. The issue is generics is kind of a bad business. There's pricing pressure, there's low margins, half the companies in the space are currently under investigation for collusion. It's not the most attractive field to get into. And then, you know, recent deals in which a company has bought somebody else's generics business have soured for the acquirer. I think the one that comes to mind is is Teva, the Israeli company, bought Allergan's generics business. And, you know, I think verifiably, you can say it hasn't gone well since then. So it's possible that Pfizer wanted to do a deal like this and surveyed the horizon and couldn't find a better partner than Mylan, so to speak. And this is something that our colleague Matt Herper has written about. And I think Pfizer is trying to reinvent itself by, you know, sort of stressing its R&D capabilities, the innovation that it can generate, you know, through new drugs. And some of those drugs, you know, they're highly targeted cancer drugs or drugs for rare diseases that could be big sellers. But, you know, when you're a behemoth like Pfizer and you're operating off a gigantic revenue base, it's hard for some of those drugs to make a dent. You know, one of the sort of nice things, and Matt Herbert pointed this out, is that, you know, by sort of shrinking itself, by divesting of all these businesses, it could sort of help to foster growth. It's going to be growing off a smaller revenue base now. And so there's some benefits to that for the company. talk a lot on this podcast about the untended consequences of spit kit businesses like 23andMe and Ancestry. I think it's fair to say that the founders of these and other consumer genetics businesses may not have fully anticipated the way their products would upend family histories, spark identity crises, and help crack open cold cases. And I don't think these companies expected either that they would become a prominent topic of discussion on some of the most toxic, hateful corners of the internet. So we're going to devote this next segment to talking about a really fascinating and and frankly disturbing new study. A team of computer science researchers set out to quantify exactly how consumer genetic testing and some of the top companies in the sector are being talked about on two social media platforms, the fairly mainstream site Reddit and the more fringe site 4chan. So the researchers mine tens of thousands of comments online. That includes memes, images, text. They found that these online communities were often discussing genetic testing in racist, sexist, and hateful contexts, sometimes alongside hate symbols like Pepe the Frog and alt-right celebrities like the white supremacist Richard Spencer. So these researchers just posted the latest version of their paper on a preprint server, and they've been accepted to present it at a big social media research conference next year. 
And joining us today to talk about the study is one of its authors. That's Jeremy Blackburn, an assistant computer science professor at State University of New York at Binghamton. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. So, Jeremy, you've written in a few of your online bios that, in a nutshell, your work can be described as studying jerks on the Internet. How do you make your way to wanting to research the online discourse around genetic testing? Well, yeah, as you said, most of my work has been about understanding kind of bad behavior online and how uh, that's enabled by what we call like uh, computer media communication. So the the reason that we came across this genetic stuff is that one of my colleagues, Emiliano de Cristofaro from University College London, does a lot of like cryptography and security work related to genomic testing or genomic uh, study. And we had also noticed in some of our research about these fringe communities that they were using genetic testing to kind of propagate their ideology. So it was kind of just a natural choice. We said, hey, let's see if we can measure this and let's see really if it's a problem or not. So for our listeners who don't spend time in these parts of the Internet, could you explain briefly kind of what Reddit and 4chan are and how these online communities work? Sure. So Reddit is kind of like a social media aggregator where people will post links and then people can upvote them or downvote them and make comments on them and stuff like that. What makes Reddit a little bit unique is that users have the ability to create subreddits, which are typically speaking focused uh, communities around a given topic. 4chan is a little bit different. So 4chan is what's called an image board. And this is an older school style bulletin board system where people just you know make a new thread and then they talk about whatever they want. The reason it's called an image board is that images play a central role in 4chan. It's most posts have an image attached to them. The politically incorrect uh, board on 4chan is in particular known uh, for pushing uh, racist ideology and things like that. Uh, so it's kind of a batter, not that great of a place on the internet. So let's talk a little bit about your methods. Could you explain for us how you and your team mined these online communities for discussions and images around genetic testing and the surrounding context? Sure. So the way that we started was we we kind of found or you know discovered about 280, I think it was, uh, genetic testing keywords, let's say. Company names and different words that, that through our literature search indicated genetic testing was being discussed. And then we have over the years collected all this Reddit data and 4chan data for other parts of our work. So we essentially searched through that data for some of these keywords, and that's how we kind of found the relevant discussions. And then from there, we perform natural language processing and image processing to see, you know, the words that people are using and how they're talking about different things and the images that they're using and the memes that they're using and that kind of stuff. So, Jeremy, let's talk about what you turned up. Discussions about genetic testing in the context of hateful ideologies, alt-right celebrities and racist memes. Can you broadly characterize these conversations for us? Well, yeah, there's a variety of them, but the highest level description of them is that they're using what amounts to scientific evidence or whatever we call these genetic at-home testing things as you know, hard evidence, quantified evidence of their ideology like Oh, look, I'm 100 uh, percent European via, you know, Germany and the UK. And then that ends up tying into weird things like, you know, lactose intolerant. Right. So people are lactose intolerant. It shows up on the genetic testing because they had some kind of heritage that was not Aryan, let's say. And then they use it just for their general support, you know, stuff like the bell curve, where they believe that certain races or ethnicities are inherently smarter or dumber. And all this kind of just plays into it. Look, we have now quantified evidence that there's something different about our genetics. And so were you surprised by the scale of what you found as you peered into this? Because we've been studying these kind of communities for a while, I'm not 
terribly surprised by much of the stuff that we find. It's not that I'm necessarily expecting it, but nothing really surprises us anymore. That said, we were surprised to see some of the specific results, like the fact that, you know, we found Lauren Southern, the alt-right personality, big pundit or whatever on Twitter and stuff. We found often found her associated with these genetic testing conversations, and they're kind of holding her up it seems, as some kind of, you know, idyllic example of superior genetics, right? She's blonde hair, white girl, has, you know, is reasonably attractive, this type of thing. One question I had while reading this paper is whether it's genetic testing specifically that's being discussed alongside hateful, racist, and sexist content, or whether you'd find that any subject is discussed that way in some of these online communities. In other words, wouldn't you find Pepe the Frog memes as part of any 4chan discussion, whether the topic is genetic testing or the weather or the iPhone? Yeah, generally speaking, certain of these memes like Pepe are going to show up in most places. Uh, it tends to be the frequency of how often they show up that might be different. But again, the most stuff that we found, the most interesting images that we found were clearly related uh, in talking about genetics. Lauren Southern doesn't show up in every thread. Uh, for example. So one of the biggest stories in tech right now is the pressure that's being placed on tech giants like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook to grapple with hateful content on their platforms. You know, given your findings, Jeremy, is this something that genetic testing companies like 23andMe and Ancestry might have a responsibility to be dealing with too? And what would that even look like? Yeah, okay. So yeah, that's a, a deep type of question. I do personally believe that, that there is some kind of responsibility. If your technology is being used to promulgate like, you know, really dangerous behavior, uh, I believe you have some sort of responsibility. Just, you know, gun companies have some sort of responsibility uh, with with uh, safe use of their of their products. What to do about it, though? Oof, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it would look like. It, that's a really good question because there are legitimate uses for you know this data. It's not like 23andMe can necessarily hide it, but it would be perhaps helpful if they more carefully explained disclaimers and did some research into understanding ethnicity versus race better and these type of things. But ultimately, it's you know it's hard to keep people from abusing data. So now that this paper is uh, you know kind of out there in the world and people are talking about it, what's the next step in this line of research for you all? Right. So, so one of the things that we want to do is better understand the context that things are, that this type of stuff is used for. Also, we want to try and figure out how this type of argument or discussion or evidence that these guys are using, how it uh, propagates through the internet as a whole, understanding what is influential, what, you know, specific talking points come out of these discussions that end up, you know, showing up on Reddit and, and Facebook and Twitter. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast, and please keep us updated on your research. Sure thing, will do. Thanks for having me. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like or didn't like about this week's episode. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 